You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Rebus placed his knife and fork on the empty plate, then leaned back in his chair, studying the other diners in the restaurant. Somebody was murdered here, you know, he announced. Oh, and they say romance is dead. Deborah Quant paused over her steak. Rebus had been about to comment that she carved it with the same care she took when using her scalpel on a cadaver, but then the murder had popped into his head, and he'd considered it the better conversational gambit. Sorry, he apologised taking a sip of red wine. They sold beer here. He'd seen waiters delivering it to a few of the tables, but he was trying to cut down a new start. It was why they were dining out in the first place, celebrating a week without cigarettes. Seven whole days. She didn't need to know about the one he'd begged from a smoker outside an office block three days back. It had made him feel queasy anyway. You can taste the food better, can't you? She asked now, not for the first time. Oh, aye, he acknowledged, stifling a cough. Ian Rankin is the author of More Novels Than I Can Count, featuring Detective Inspector John Rebus. He's won more awards than I can probably account as well. But let's include the Edgar Award, the Golden Dagger, the Diamond Dagger for Lifetime Achievement, and the Chandler Fulbright Award. He brought John Rebus to life 30 years ago on April 17th. Am I right? Oh, I forget. I mean, it was it was March your, or April, yeah. It was it was your. Aren't you? Uh, don't you share a birthday with John Rebus? Um, not quite. I think it's uh, the the first book opens with it was April the twenty eighth, raining naturally, and that is my birthday. But he's actually visiting his mother's grave or his father's grave. I can't remember. So it's the anniversary of when one of his parents died, and he's visiting the cemetery. But I chose my birthday to be the kind of opening of the book. Well, I guess this uh, standing at the grave is a. Uh, as an image that carries forward some 30 years. You know, back then, you made a really important decision for Rebus that he was going to age at the exact speed you were. <laughs> so yeah, talk no. about that, making that decision and some of the implications that have for both you and him. Well, huge implications, of course, because in the first book, he was 40 years old. I was 24, 25 when I started writing it. But that meant that 20 years later, he was 60. And I discovered that 60 was the mandatory retirement age for detectives in Scotland, so he had to retire. Um, so he did at the end of Exit Music, which was the 17th Rebus book. And then for a few years, I didn't write about him, didn't really much think about him. Fans would keep saying, what's he up to? What's he doing? And I got an idea for a cold case novel, and there was a, a real-life unit in Edinburgh staffed by retired cops that looked into old unsolved cases. And I thought, well, this is perfect. This is what Rebus would be doing in real life. He wouldn't have given up being a detective. He would have tried to get his way back into the force as a civilian, connected in some way, no matter how peripherally, to the police. Um, So I brought him back, and I really enjoyed the process, and readers really enjoyed having him back, and I thought, oh, there's a little bit more I can do with you. And the last few books, Rick, really have been a story of mortality tapping him on the shoulder and saying... You know, he's kind of looking around and he's seeing that the world has changed. He doesn't really understand the world anymore. He's still trying to make sense of the world. And at the same time, he's wondering if he makes a difference. Does he still have a role to play in the world? And this, you know, um, gives him a kind of connection to a guy called Cafferty, the villain, the gangster who runs Edinburgh or used to run Edinburgh. These are two guys of a certain age, mid-60s, and they're wondering if they've still got a role to play. Uh, uh, you know, can he still make a difference? And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird because, you know, I mean, how much more can I do with him? I have slowed the clock considerably. Mm-hmm. So in my head, he's actually still mid-60s. Right. But if, you, if you, you say, you know, oh, the first book came out 30 years ago, he was 40 in the first book, therefore he's now 70 in real time. But in my head, he's 65. Because, you know, by the time he gets to 70, I go, well, what's, what's he, what crimes can he possibly be solving? I mean, you know, like, <laughs> as he runs around in his electric wheelchair. Uh, you know, he, I mean, he's changed a lot over the years. He, mm-hmm. You know, he, physic- he hasn't got the same physical presence that he had. He used to use his physical heft to intimidate suspects and to get answers. And now he's a guy in his mid-60s. People aren't as afraid of him as he used to be. And so he's got to use his street smarts and his wiles and everything that he's learned over the preceding 30, 40 years to get him the answers that he craves. 
the bad attitude that he carries with him. That's, I think, his most important uh, tool and weapon. Sure. I mean, he has got attitude. He's got bags of it. But in the last few books, there have been occasions where he's almost got into a fight, a physical confrontation. And he's kind of backed away because he's afraid he would lose. Mm. And he would then lose face. He would be shamed. And so he won't get into a fight now. And he can't chase suspects anymore. You know, he just can't do it. You know, someone runs away, he just lets them go. Um, and so, but, you know, I'm, as you can see, I mean, I know radio listeners can't, but I'm a man in the full prime of youth, full of vim and vigor. <laughs> and so I've got to try and think my way into his, you know, slightly debauched body uh, every year because, you know, he's a guy who smoked pretty much all his life. He drinks a lot of liquor. He doesn't take care of his diet. He eats a lot of fried food. He doesn't get sleep when he should be getting sleep. Uh, he isn't, doesn't take any exercise. And in fact, in this book, he has got, he's got some serious health issues. And that's a little tip of the hat to my wife, who's been saying for a few years, look, he's had a really lucky ride health-wise. It's time something happened to him. So this book is, is for her. Uh, one of the things that about when you create a detective character. One of the great things about the detective is that they have access to everybody from, you know, presidents to paupers. What's nice about Rebus is now that he's not a detective, he seems to have even managed to use his not being a detective to expand his range since he could lie about being a detective to anybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite scenes in the book is where a, a real a, a detective, uh, Malcolm Fox, a detective inspector, realizes that, that uh, Rebus has filched a lot of his business cards and is passing himself off as detective inspector <laughs> Malcolm Fox. I mean, Fox realizes that. It's a great scene. Uh, yeah, I mean, Rebus, you know, he's retired... He doesn't carry a badge anymore. But when he walks into the police station in Edinburgh, everybody knows him. They let him pass the front desk. He can go upstairs to the CID office. I mean, that again, that can't last forever because eventually the staff will change and they won't know who this guy is. He'll just be a civilian walking in off the street. But, but it, you know what it is? It's, it, I enjoy it because it gives me a challenge. You can get a little bit lazy when you've got a series with the same characters and are doing much the same things. For me, every book I write with, the, with these characters is like a standalone novel because the world has moved on, the world has changed, they have changed. And so I come at it from a different perspective and I go, OK, Rebus is retired. That gives me new challenges. That keeps me on my toes. How can I get him into a police investigation? How can I make that happen? What kind of thing could he still do? Um, and meantime, Malcolm Fox has been, has been promoted above Siobhan Clark. So their relationship has changed. She's annoyed at him because she's a much better cop than him. She knows and he knows. And yet he's the one who gets the, um, who, who gets the promotion. So the triangle of relationships there keeps changing as well. Rebus's relationship with Cafferty, the, the gangster, the ex-gangster changes between books. And Edinburgh itself and Scotland move on socially, politically, economically. Things change. And so when I come at each new book, I come at it like it's a completely different set of characters. It shows because there's so much fire in these characters. It's really just a delight to get together with these people every time. And I think, too, perhaps are you putting more work into the 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 smaller characters? Because they just seem to really pop in this book. Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, minor characters... Um, you can get interested in them. You know, with detective fiction, with a police procedural, often you just need someone there to answer, to give some answers, to, to take the reader in a certain direction, to show the reader where the story is going to go next. But you sometimes get really interested in these people and they cease to be ciphers um, and, and become real to you. And I mean, Cafferty started life as a very minor character in book three. But it just it got under my skin, and that often happens. The minor characters get under your skin. And at the same time, you want them to come to life. You mm. don't want them to be... It's one of the criticisms that used to be made of thrillers and detective novels was that the, the characterization was secondary to the plot. Mm -hmm. It was all about making the plot work. And your characters, even your main detectives, could be a little bit wooden or a little bit cardboard. You know, They didn't have an awful lot of spark to them or a lot of life to them. But I think the writers these days are much more interested in the interaction and the humanity. You know, I mean, what interests me about a detective per se is not the who done it. It's what the doing that job does to them mm. as human beings. The changes it makes to them, how it makes them cynical, how it makes how it puts up barriers between them and the rest of the world, how it makes them, you know, mistrustful of, of people they meet because they think everybody's hiding something or trying to hide stuff from them. Um, 
Or, you know, but also they are, they represent the novelist. I think the detective, the figure of the detective really is the novelist. You know, we're all trying to make sense of the world around us and we're all trying to give it a shape, a pleasing shape, and we're all trying to get answers to questions. And in reality, you don't always get satisfactory endings um, to your quests, but in fiction, you can make it so. I think that uh, as we read your books, one of the things for me that I just really love is the way that um, these all these characters, you really create this world of Edinburgh, no matter what decade you're in. You've really created it well. And I think that building up this world for with all these characters and the changing locations. So talk a little mm. bit about just creating that world for the reader. Well, I arrived in Edinburgh aged 18 to, to go to university to study literature. And I didn't know the city at all well. I'd been there maybe half a dozen to a dozen times my whole life. And yet it was only 30 miles away from where I grew up. But where I grew up, we didn't have a car. Uh, the trains were infrequent. I didn't have money to go to the city anyway. So I began to explore Edinburgh um, and try and make sense of it. And I'd always used writing as a way of doing that. You know, from when I was a kid, I was writing stuff down, making up stories, playing God, you know, having the power of life and death over my characters and creating an alternative world in which things would work out the way I wanted them to. I'd always done it. I'd done it with cartoons, you know, comic book type figures and, and poetry and short stories. And then eventually I started writing novels about Edinburgh, set in Edinburgh, to make sense of the place, to find out more about its history, to answer some of the questions I had, to, tr to try and get to the heart of what makes it a unique place. And that process is ongoing. You know, 30 years later, that process is ongoing because Edinburgh is organic. It keeps changing. The world around it keeps changing. Scotland keeps changing. The UK, I mean, look at what's happening now with Brexit. This is a challenge for all novelists. What do we do about this? Do we ignore it? Do we ignore that it's happening? Do we wait and see what the outcome is? Because nobody knows what the outcome is going to be yet. Or do we just try and use it in our books, use it in our stories and, and, and make sense of it? Try to help the reader make sense of it. Um, these are really weird times to be a novelist. Uh, we always say that, that fiction has to be realistic. The real world does not. And there are so many mind-boggling <laughs> things happening in the world right now <laughs> that you just couldn't make up. You couldn't make them up. Nobody would believe it, you know. So uh, so fiction writers have got that challenge, that problem. But the, the reason that a lot of readers come to mystery novels, crime novels, um, is for the pleasure of, of, of the, the shape, the ending. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. The crime, the investigation, the resolution. And that's very pleasing to the reader. Um, but it's also very pleasing to the writer that you, you have cre crafted something that actually makes sense of itself. It makes sense in a way that the real world sometimes does not. Well, what's so wonderful about your books is they seem entirely organic and driven by the characters. Right. And in a sense... You say the who done it. You're not that interested in the who done it as much as we are driven by a compulsion to find out what happened. The real pleasure in reading your books is just to be there on the page in your prose with your characters in that place. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love hanging out with these people. I just, I, you know, they've, they've, they've I've spent more time with Rebus than with most people I know in the real world. It's not always an easy place to be inside his head, but um, I'm always there, sort of, you know, looking. Well, maybe looking over his shoulder rather than looking out through his eyes trying to understand this guy, trying to make sense of this very complex character. He's a much more complex person than I am. Um, and every time I write a new book, I find out more about him, stuff I didn't know. Or his world has changed. I mean, in this new book, he's got COPD. He's got a pulmonary disorder, um, which he's not going to recover from. I mean, that's going to be something he's going to have to deal with the rest of his life. Um, and so that's a change from the previous book. Suddenly he's going, oh, I'm not, I'm not, superhuman. Uh, I'm not immortal um, like everybody else. Uh, and that's and at the same time, his daughter has had a kid. And so suddenly he's a grandfather for the first time. And that, again, he's thinking, how do I cope with that? How do I, how do I react as a grandparent? I've never been a grandparent before. So there's lots of changes in his life that, that I've got to take on board. Um, of course, when you write about the real world, I mean, you know, you talk about Edinburgh. The problem is Edinburgh keeps changing almost <laughs> too fast. So, for example, in this book, there's a scene where Rebus and Cafferty meet for a coffee at a real cafe uh, chain, uh, a, a branch of a chain of ca cafes I'm not going to name on the air because uh, they don't pay their tax in the UK as much as they should. But the, uh, I went there recently and it's changed into a Mexican restaurant. So, <laughs> so when fans make the pilgrimage to this cafe where Rebus and Cafferty have their meetings, they'll go, where is it? It's not here. Has he invented it? I go, no, it used to be there. It's just changed. It's now a Mexican restaurant. 
is that uh, place where we get the bacon and sausage? The <laughs> no, bacon rolls. Is that real? That's fictitious. People have been asking me. They've been saying, "Where's this place with the best bacon rolls in Edinburgh?" I go, "No, I made it up. It doesn't you exist." Did? Yeah. Sorry oh, about that. Oh my sorry about that. Gosh. I know. Uh, this uh, story, the story in this book, the the mystery in this book is wonderful because you do a great job of giving us a big onion with a bunch of stuff on the outside. Then we can peel it away till we can find what's at the core, and I like that. Uh, we have Rebus, who is the most old school cop in the world, uh, dealing with some pretty high tech and, you know, uh, scamulous things that are now, uh, gosh, now that money's electronic, it's so much more fun and easy to steal. Yeah, really. I mean, that is a true, that's a true story as well. It's based very much on, I mean, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, mm -hmm. but the, 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 the financial shenanigans in the book, um, it was a real thing that happened. And it, it was there was a TV documentary, and it was something that could only happen in Scotland because of the way our corporations were structured. The SLPs? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Scottish Limited Partnerships. Um, and so there was a scam, and there was a TV documentary about it, and then a news magazine called Private Eye picked up on it and ran a few stories about it, and I thought, oh, this is intriguing. And with the restructuring of the police force in Scotland a few years ago, we got this thing called Gartkosh, the Scottish Police um, Campus, um, Scottish Crime Campus. And it's a place they built from scratch that's almost like a university, and it's where all the senior... Excuse me. It's where all the senior cops hang out. It's where people from Internal Revenue Fraud Office hang out. It's where the prosecutors hang out, and they all get to mix with each other and meet each other and 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 work. Um, and having been there, I thought, okay, so this is where the financial scams um, are 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 investigated. And also, I thought this is these are all suits. These are all people who have got to a position where they are because they obey the rules and they're they're team players and all the rest of it. I thought. Malcolm Fox would fit right in here. <laughs> and he and, has uh, so you know, much fun there, I thought, too. But I thought, if I move Fox here, that's really going to annoy Siobhan Clark, who should think she should have got that promotion, not him. Um, and so that changes their relationship. So, yeah, I took Fox there and used this financial um, irregularity as a one plot point in the book. At the same time, I thought, well, Rebus can't investigate that. That's a current case. Um, but I got the idea for this murder of a socialite, a, a, a rich woman who's been having an affair and she's found dead in a five-star hotel, uh, a real hotel. I had to get permission to use it in, in the book. And, um, you know, and he, he, being the kind of cop that he was and is, he's kept all the case notes. So in a spare bedroom in his apartment are, are just boxes and boxes and boxes of newspaper clippings, notes on cases he's worked on that weren't satisfactorily resolved. Um, and, you know, he's taking his girlfriend out for a meal. They're having a meal at this posh hotel, and he mentions the murder. And that just, he thinks, yeah, nothing ever happened about that. And it takes him back to the case notes. And then something happens in the present that resonates and it starts to tie the two cases together. The fun part for me when I start a book is that I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know if the case in the present and the case in the past will meet at any point. And, and, and the fun part is when I start to see the possible connections. It's fun for the reader, too. And that's, I think, that sense of fun comes right for us. I, I think there's there's no doubt about it, that the, the your discovery is a, a sure. generates ours as but, well. But I mean, the other thing is that this, this book segues from the previous book, Even Dogs in the Wild. That book ended at a funeral with Cafferty, the gangster, holding up one finger to Rebus to say, I've got one good fight left in me. Or maybe mm. we both have one good fight left in us. And, you know, they're kind of like two old pugilists, two old heavyweight boxers who refuse to leave the ring, even though they're surrounded by younger, fitter, faster, cleverer people. And this is the story of that one last good fight. And part of the thing was that people had been, readers had been saying to me for a few books, oh, I've, I've got to really like Cafferty. He's a nice big cuddly bear of a guy. And I go, you shouldn't be thinking that. This guy is dangerous. He's dark and dangerous. You shouldn't be thinking he's big and cuddly. I've made a mistake here somewhere. So in this book, I think he's a much dark. He becomes a much darker character, you know, uh, uh, and yeah, and uh, and not giving too much away, but you will learn why he why he can't give up a bargain. <laughs> if it's a two for one offer, he has to take it. I I think that <laughs> uh, one of the things about this book is seeing. Um, I think you have a lot of fun with your antagonists, uh, and, and I. Like you say, I've, I've always liked uh, Cafferty, but like you, to be honest, I have not really ever trusted him. And I've been waiting uh, for for the, the other shoe to fall, so to speak. 
Yeah, I mean, what, again, it's an organic process. Mm. I decided, though, Caffrey is getting older. There's going to be younger, more venal villains coming along wanting his turf. So in, in previous books, that's what's happened. And this guy, Daryl Christie, came along who was... You know, he 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 started life in uh, standing in another man's grave, and he was a kind of very small-time player whose whose sister had gone missing. Um, but he then uses his uses his his intelligence to to become a big player uh, on the Edinburgh scene, uh, and muscles seems to muscle Cafferty aside, and and Cafferty looks like he's okay with that. You know, he's going okay. You know, I'm I'm in retirement anyway, or semi-retirement. The field is yours. Um, and I thought, would he really think like that? Or is he playing a long game? You know? <laughs> and so between books, I've been thinking, how long a game has Cafferty been playing? And we start to see some of that emerge in this book. I, I think that one of the things that's really amazing, in, especially in these books, starting with In Another Man's Grave, Standing in Another Man's Grave, is you really have a great sense of how to take a character arc across multiple novels, and and to, and what's kind of amazing to to hear you say is that this is or each novel is essentially conceived as standalone and organic. So those organic shoots or seeds must be exist deep within you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's always a problem if you've got a series. If you're writing a series, there's going to be some readers out there who haven't read you before. And you're saying to them, hey, this is book number 21, but don't be afraid. You can jump in. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to have read the first 20 to get to get it. No. Um, and so there's a little bit of a balancing act where you've got to give a certain amount of information to these new readers without really boring readers who've been with you since day one, who mm-hmm. know the books better than you do. And, it, you know, you just, I think, you know, over time you learn how to do that, how, how to play fair by both. And the, thing, the reason I use music in the books a lot is because I think it delineates character very quickly. So if you're new to the series, you don't know this guy, Rebus, you just look at his record collection. You know, I mean, you just look at what he's playing when he's late at night in his apartment. He's, he's, you can get a sense of his age because of the music he plays, his background. He's a blue-collar guy, the kind of music he listens to. He's a loner. He's not a party animal. He's not sociable because of the kind of music he listens to. So you can get quite a lot of his character just from his musical choices. And that means I don't have to spell it out. You know, he's doing it for you, or he's doing it for me. He's well, telling the reader who he is. Uh, I have to say that uh, the mention of Solid Air just brought back that record. <laughs> I know. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, this book, um, uh, Rather Be the Devil, the song is actually I'd Rather Be the Devil, but I didn't want that first person I to get in there. I wanted it to be more generalized, so I took the I out. But it's an old Skip James number, I think, an old blues number originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Martin reinvented it on his album Solidaire. What was that, around about 73? Oh, Something boy, like yeah. yeah. And um, I just, you know, it's it's a great song. And often there's a there's a resonance for me. So if you look at the lyrics of the song, please, not until you've read the book, but if you look at the lyrics of the song, part of the plot will be revealed therein. And the same went with Even Dogs in the Wild. The same went with Standing in a Man's Grave, uh, which is a Jackie Leaven, misheard Jackie Leaven lyric, a friend of mine. Um you know, it's it's fun to do, um, and one of the big disappointments in my life was that I did a show once in in London called a radio show called uh, Desert Island Discs. It's been going on the BBC for I don't know how many decades, and they ask you to choose eight records, your eight records that mean the most to you, and I chosen Solid Air by John Martin as one of them, and I was down in London to record this. Is years ago having lunch with my agent, and we could hear raucous laughter outside the restaurant, and as we stepped out, having finished the meal, sitting at a table. Uh, on the sidewalk was John Martin with a couple of his mates finishing their sixth bottle of wine. Wow. And I thought I should go up to him and say, you know, the reason I'm in London is to do this show and the one record at the end to say, which is the one record out of these eight you couldn't live without? I said, well, Solid Air by John Martin. I couldn't go up to him. I just froze. Uh, really? And that was the only chance I ever had to say hello to John Martin and tell him how much his music meant to me. So, you know, a top tip, if you ever get the chance to meet your heroes, do it. Because it might be the only chance you get. At one point, I think, is it Fox? Is it mm. Fox who's reading books for yeah. an interview? Yeah. And uh, his these people at Garkosh who create a whole new uh, layer of people. And, and I love this guy, James. He is He's a real, I think you would have to describe him as a piece of work. A piece of work, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a few pieces of work in this book. I mean, one of, the, <laughs> in, one of the interesting things, if you're a police procedural writer in Scotland, is that with the shakeup of the way the police are structured now, 
the the you know Edinburgh's detectives, the detectives who've been based there all their lives, all their professional lives. If a if a big case arrives, a big murder case arrives, they're not in charge anymore. Um, a, a team is now parachuted in. Um, a kind of crack team, a team of specialists is is parachuted in um, from police headquarters. And so they arrive in the city and they don't really know the city and they don't really know the people around them. And so the the local cops are pushed aside. And so you get that resentment, but also a chance to have some fun. So, you know, this this team is parachuted in um, and to look at to look at a, at a murder case, an ex-cop who's found dead. And um, they don't really know what they're doing. And the local cops can have some fun with them. And at the same time, there's that kind of rivalry. Um, that you're always going to get in an organisation when two teams are competing with each other, you know, um, and and all of, and Rebus just walks in and he loves stirring it up. <laughs> he just loves to stir it up and he stirs it up at every possible <laughs> occasion he can get. Um, and Fox, who's been promoted and therefore has left Edinburgh, is now back in Edinburgh because he's their liaison officer, uh, and so he's kind of trapped between the two. You know, he's trapped between these these two. He's in this no man's land between these two warring sides, and that's just it's just a lot of fun. But it's organic. You know, I don't I don't think I don't think about it too much before I start. It just that's the way it would be. Mm. You know, that haven't I know the the organisation of the police well enough that that's how it would be. And these are the strains, and here's the chances for some comedic moments, and here's the chance to invent good big three dimensional characters. And what kind of person would you be to run an investigation like that? And what team would you have around you? And what strengths and weaknesses would they have? You know, the guy who, whose job just seems to be to go and get tea and biscuits all the time, you know. And Fox, <laughs> I like that Fox, Fox is always sent out to buy a kettle because they don't have a kettle so they can boil up their water for tea and stuff. Uh, and it's like every break is, oh, let's have some biscuits. Who's got the biscuits? Nobody's bought biscuits? What? <laughs> and it's like these little things that all all teams, you know, all organisations have these these kind of moments. Um, but it, it, again, using something like that—the making of a cup of tea, or the making of tea or biscuits for the for the team—tells you a lot about the interactions. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're getting a lot of information about these people by their by these very minor details of their everyday lives. Now, there's a scene. Uh, you you said you had to get permission to set this at a real hotel, which is interesting. I didn't know you had to do that. I don't know if I had to get permission or not, but I thought I would. You know, I mean, it's the the hotel is the the Waldorf Astoria Caledonian Hotel um, on Princess Street in Edinburgh. And I just thought, you know, it's a real place. How are they going to feel about a fictitious murder happening here? So I got in touch with them. And in fact, they, you know, I knew them because a few years ago I had a gangster living in that hotel and the general manager was thrilled and uh, decided to name a cocktail in the bar, the Rebus Rob, Ro- Rebus Rob Roy, she called it. So we invented a cocktail <laughs> because they were, they were, she was so happy that I'd set some scenes in the hotel. Anyway, I thought I'd better get back and just check that, that they're okay with this. Uh, and he said to me, oh, a murder in our hotel? How long ago? And I said, 40 years ago. Oh, yeah, you're fine. Don't worry. <laughs> we didn't even own the place then. <laughs> now, uh, was that concert tour and that uh, musician was that based on some somebody oh, you followed you know i just thought okay we've got this five star hotel we've got you know a murder that happened a rich woman found dead who was in the hotel what kind of cast of suspects could we have and the hotel is pretty much across the road from the usher hall which is the biggest concert venue in the city um, and, you know, the murder happened in 1978, which is when I arrived in Edinburgh to start university. In fact, the murder happened in October 78, which is a month I arrived in Edinburgh. And, I, was, I you know, I started going to gigs for the first time because where I grew up was too small to have concerts. Was this all a coincidence? No, man, it's all, you know, it's all meant to happen. And I just thought, OK, so there's a big rock star staying at the hotel. He's playing a gig and he's a, it's a homecoming gig. And he's is he based on anybody? I mean, you know, there's a little bit of uh, Phil Collins, Collins in there, maybe. Because uh-huh. he's been in a band and he's gone solo and he's having hits with old numbers. Oh, old right. songs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but physically, there's a little touch of there's a Scottish singer, a great gravelly voiced singer called Frankie Miller. And there's a little bit of Frankie Miller, I think, physically in him as well. Um, Bruce Collier is the name of my guy. Um, one of the fun things is that Rebus goes to talk to Bruce Collier, this this musician who's still around but doesn't doesn't gig anymore. Um, and he takes with him an old LP to get it signed. And it's in a <laughs> carrier bag from a defunct record store called Bruce's. Well, Bruce's was a real record store in Edinburgh when I was a student. And the guy who ran it, Bruce Findlay, I know really well. So it was lovely to get a little mention of Bruce's record shop. Uh, and, you know, when people read that, they go, oh, my God, I remember that place. And our, this, this is real. This is real. So then they start to think Bruce Collier was maybe real. You know, the, the character Collier yeah, was maybe yeah, they real. Start- 
And they go, was it really a band called, what did they call them, Blacksmith? Yeah. Blacksmith, yeah. Was Blacksmith. it really a band called Blacksmith? I'm gonna, <laughs> well, no, there wasn't. And yeah, I wish there was. I would have gone to see them if, there had, if they'd existed. I think they're kind of based on a band called Nazareth. Oh, who okay. were the Fife, the big Fife band when I was growing up were Nazareth, the uh, big kind of heavy rock band who made it pretty big both sides of the pond. I was thinking uh, Spooky Tooth. Yeah, Spooky Tooth, although they, got a, they had some kind of weird stuff as well, didn't they? But their kind of second album, that bluesy, big bluesy album they did was a great album. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit of that. And I don't know. Frampton came out of it, didn't he? Uh, partial, part, no, no, was he in Camel? Where did Frampton in? I can't remember. I don't think he was in Spooky Tooth. I forget he was in Spooky Tooth. Spooky, Spooky Two is, is a great album. I've, I've got that on vinyl. I managed to get a copy on eBay years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a, frust- <laughs> I'm a frustrated rock star. I would much rather be a, a rock star than a than than a writer, like a lot of writers I know. And this Do is you a have chance. a guitar and play it? I don't, but I am in a dad band. There's a dad- well, we've, we've not played any gigs yet, but okay. there's, a, there's, a, there's six of us who get together on a Monday night in Edinburgh and, and jam and rehearse. Uh, and it's like, you know, there's, there's I a, never heard of this thing, a dad band. Dad I'm in band. a dad band. Yeah, there you go. It's all guys in their fifties, you know, who, <laughs> who just haven't given up the dream. Uh, and you know, we get, and I'm the vocalist. I'm terrible. I'm the weakest link in this chain, but there's one professional musician who plays with us and the rest are, uh, you know, there's a couple of journalists and, a um, an academic and a doctor, um, and we just play for fun. But what we're hoping to get is three or four songs we're happy with, and then we're going to try and just do a, a vinyl EP. So we've actually got something physical as a manifestation. Because I was in a band when I was 18, 19, The Dancing Pigs. Um, we went in a recording studio a couple of times, cut five tracks, but we put them on a cassette. All we've got is a cassette. We never did get the chance to make a record or anything. So I would like to get some vinyl out there. You've got to put those five songs on your website. Oh, no, MP3s. Jesus, no. Look, I'm doing the world a favor by not putting those five songs on my website. The guitarist got in touch a few years ago. He said, hey, Ian, I've burnt the stuff on a CD for you. I went, please, don't tell anybody you've done this. Yeah, just burn it. <laughs> don't burn the CD, just burn the songs. Yeah. Uh, I think that um, there's... Lots of you have lot a really great sense of setting scenes and and in scenes doing like there's some really great cat and mouse scenes one with Grieve and Stark uh, I just love the, your sensibility of your ability to like have these scenes where all of a sudden you just ratchet up the tension really high this is a big work I mean this I look at these last. From standing on a mother man's grave till you finish, and I hope there's going to be quite a few more. <laughs> Rebus Fest better have an extended life span. <laughs> but I, I, I think that keeping up the um, attention to detail on the story side and uh, versus the big arc that's a, that is a tough battle. Do you like have? Do you go back and look at your previous books in this series, or do you just kind of fly away? I, you know, I, I don't. Um, I've been thinking maybe I should do that. I should go back and read the series from day one um, just to see what I've not said yet or what I've not explored yet or if there's anything I've missed out. Um, no, normally it's just it's sheer panic. You know, I sit there in, I sit in my house and I suddenly go, hang on a minute, I, I, I've got to deliver a book in June and it's now November. I better get started. And and I go to my big um, folder full of scraps of paper and clippings from newspapers and magazines and ideas and characters and jokes and puns and settings, and I just go through it. Well, you know, it's stuff I collate all year round, and I just see what's in there. And is there anything that really grabs my attention? And are there maybe two or three storylines in there that I can maybe, that I possibly could connect in some way? Um, and then I just start. I just start in a sheer panic. And uh, rather be the devil... I began writing probably January, February last year. Uh, and I, we've got a house way up in the north of Scotland, um, like a, a vacation house. Um, but I take my trusty old computer up there with me, my laptop computer, and there's no cell phone signal, there's no TV. And I just sat down, plugged it in and started. And I wrote the first 100 pages in 10 days. Boom, wow. Boom. I mean, you know, first draft, it was ragged and everything else. But by 100 pages in, you think, OK, yeah, I've got I've got some stories I'm happy with. I can see where this might go next. So that was quite fun. Um, and then so I did something unusual. Normally, I would just keep writing, but I had to go to a festival in Dubai. So I, 
I printed off the first 100 pages, took them with me and read them while I was in Dubai at this festival. And then when I got back, I got straight back into it again. Normally, I would just write blindly, thinking, where, where's the story wanting to take me? Um, and I was two thirds of the way through this, the first draft, before I realised that a minor character was actually a major character. Mm-hmm. You know, I really had not much idea what was going on until I got about two thirds of the way through and thought, oh, hang on a minute, it's you. Um, and that's always, you know, a revelation. And I love it when it happens. The story knows where it wants to go. Um, I don't, but the story tells me where it wants to go. And so by the time you've done the second and third draft, you make it look to the reader as though it was always meant to happen, as though it was organic. But in fact, you've done a lot of filling in. I don't do the research really until after the first draft. Oh, really? Well, because by then I know what I need to know. Oh, okay. Not what I might need to know. Oh, so you don't just so, kind of salt yourself with stuff and hope something exactly. grows out of it. No, you I, go the other opposite direction. Well, I mean, years ago I did a book, and it wasn't a Rebus novel, it was a thriller, but it was about a hemophiliac. He was an assassin, but he, was a hemo- he had this, skinny, this one weakness, which is he was a hemophiliac. And I spent months researching hemophilia, and all I needed was half a page of stuff in the book. <laughs> well, now I would do, I would do that. You know, after the first draft, and by then I go, okay, so I need to really know about this, and I need to go and check that out, I need to do that. And that speeds up the research process, you know, hugely. You mentioned earlier how you came to Edinburgh at 18 to attend school. You are now returning the favor as part of uh, Rebus's 30th anniversary, right? Am I not? Um, well, the th- uh, well, Rebus 30 is kind of, we've got all kinds of things happening. I've been teaching creative writing, at a, a creative writing course at a university in England, which has been a challenge. Um, um, you know, because I've never done a creative writing course in my life. I've never been to one, really. Uh, I, d- I didn't go to one as a student or anything. I just sat in my room and tried to write. But yeah, we're doing lots of things. We're we're um, we've that's got re- it. We've got a Rebus <laughs> festival. Uh-huh. We've got a we're gonna have a music fest. We're gonna have a, a couple of days music fest at the end of June, beginning of July. Um, bands that Rebus would listen to or that I would listen to. Um, uh, we've got, you know, like a, a pub quiz and a walking tour and this Highland Park are going to do a special malt whiskey, a 30-year-old whiskey for it. And uh, a graphic artist friend of mine, a cartoonist, is going to do some scenes, my favourite 10 scenes from the books, and he's going to actually draw them. Um, and we're going to give him away his postcards and posters and stuff. So, wow, that sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. I know, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff going on. And uh, Leith Police Station, which is the first police station I ever went into t- when I was doing research for the first book, um... I've said you can come along behind the scenes, bring bring a prize winner with you. So we'll have some kind of competition and the winner will get to come along to the police station with me and see behind the scenes of the first police station I ever walked into. Now, you must have a well-seasoned uh, connection to the Scotland police by this time. Not really. Really? Uh, well, because everybody I know is retired. <laughs> Really? They've all gone. I mean, I get a lot of invitations to police retirement parties. And when I go to them, I meet cops who retired, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. And they tell great stories. And I, I, I suck all that stuff. I hoover all that stuff up because these are the guys who are Rebus's age. Uh-huh. So the stories they are telling me are things that he would have been involved in potentially. And in fact, Saints of the Shadow Bible, a previous Rebus novel, I'll, you know, which looked back at Rebus's younger time uh, as a detective, th- the stories in that, the things that happened back then or things that I heard about at police retirement parties that really happened. Um, no, a lot of my contacts have gone. I mean, I do make new contacts. I've got just about... The thing is, I don't want the books to become public relations exercises for the police. <laughs> I, want, I want to still feel able to write about bent cops, cops who cross the line, you know, dirty cops, you name it. And so if, if the only cops I know are good cops, I might feel constrained or restrained. So I only go near the police if I've got a specific question or something I need to know. And if I do need to know it, there are a few people I can still contact. Now, I'm wondering uh, if you were testing your psychic powers when there's an element uh, in this mystery, a name that gets mentioned a couple times, mistaken for being from one country when he's really from another. And these people seem to be involved. They are everywhere, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. We just can't get away from them, can we? No, you know, I mean, we've, we go uh, in different periods in, in, in history. We have, you know, we need bad guys, right? We need mm-hmm. the baddies. And we see it in Hollywood as well. And at one time, it was all South Africans. Do you remember that? Like, in every, every thriller film, it was always white South Africans were the baddies because <laughs> that was a time of apartheid. And we thought, well, it's okay to have white South Africans as baddies. Um, 
Uh, and for some reason, a lot of English actors got jobs doing that, playing South African baddies. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, now we've got East Europeans. We've got all kinds of East European gangsters and stuff happening over there and a lot of dirty money, a lot of money that's coming out of places like Russia or has come out of places like Russia uh, that has to be disappeared, that has to be cleaned, that has to be laundered, that has to be got rid of. Um, and there's an awful lot of this stuff going on in Eastern Europe is where, you know, it, you know it, you've got the potential there for readers to believe that it's credible to have East European gangsters um, doing this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I, but that, you know, in different periods in history, it's been different people. Um, uh, and it, absolutely fascinating. You know, we had South American drug cartels for a while. So we had this kind of South American bad guys. Uh, <laughs> oh, now we've got Eastern European bad guys. Nostalgia, the journey down nostalgia lane. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's, but it's, what, it's what's credible. It's mm-hmm. what the reader or the viewer will believe. You know, these people are could be the baddies, yeah, because we read about it in the newspapers, and and we know this stuff's happening. Um, and who knows where we go next? I'm not sure where we'll get our bad, bad, uh, our, our our evil doers from next. Uh, we have to wait and see. Well, there's never a shortage of them, it seems. Really, I mean, honestly, you know, oh, we we've probably had this conversation before, but you know. All crime fiction is predicated on that one very simple question. Why do we human beings keep doing terrible things, especially to each other? And, you know, in different periods in history, different cultures, we keep doing terrible things. We're all capable of doing terrible things. And, you know, human nature, you think are people made bad or, uh, you know, is, is it circumstance that causes them to do terrible things or what? Um, and it's a fascinating question and we're all fascinated by it. And it's an easy question to ask and an almost impossible question to answer. Years ago, I, did a, I made a TV series, a documentary series in the UK on evil. And it was three one-hour programmes. And the first programme, we said, what do we mean? Does, does evil, can we actually define it? Or does it mean different things to different cultures at different periods in history? Uh, number two, where does it come from? Nature or nurture? People born bad or made bad? And programme three, what do we do about it? Um, how do we tackle this, this, this thing? Uh, and it was fascinating. And by the end of months of research and going around filming, and I, you know, I was talking to psychiatrists, experts, and I was I was exercised by a, a, an exorcist in the, the Vatican. Uh, I spoke to a guy on death row in Texas who was waiting to be executed. You know, I got access to all these amazing stories. But it, by the end of it, I could point to an act and say that was an act of evil at the moment in which it occurred. It was much harder to point to a human being and say you are irredeemably evil. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and we keep coming back to this question with human nature is, I mean, the readers have been asked this all the time, these big moral questions. I'm asking my readers big moral questions about the way the world is, the mess we're in. How did we get here? What can we do about it? What would you do about it? What would you do in this situation? Um, and I think that's why, you know, a lot of young writers are being attracted to the mystery novel or, or, or detective fiction or the thriller who a generation ago would have wanted to be literary authors, literary novelists. I think they don't see much of a distinction now. They think the crime novel can take on all these big questions. If you want to write about politics, if you want to write about um, social issues, if you want to write about big moral themes of good and evil, crime fiction is perfect. Crime fiction is a growth industry. That's what I was thinking really as is. reading this book. I mean, people are not going to stop doing this. It does not matter what technology we bring to bear. It does not matter what society brings to bear. Human beings have an amazing ability to find out how to do something wrong and an even better intention to get out there and do it. Absolutely. And Rebus has always been a, a, a bit of a, 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 an anarchist in a way. If you're a kind of rich business person or a big, big shot politician and you've done something and it's just because you're venal, it's because you think you can get away with it, he's going to come after you. If you're a small-time crook who's having to try and put bread on the table so you go and steal something, he'll try and give you a break, you know? He'll give, he'll give the small-time crook a break, but if you're a, if you're a big shot, he's coming for you. And uh, it reminds me of Columbo. Remember Columbo, the TV show? It was always rich people who were committing these crimes. It was rich people in positions of power and influence. Who thought they could get away with it? Who thought they could get away with it? And here comes this shambling working-class guy, this blue-collar guy comes into their life, and they think, no, I'm, I'm cleverer than him. I've got status, and he's not got status. I, I, you know, I, can, I can dismiss him. He's not going to catch me. And it was that brilliant thing about this kind of blue-collar. It was a revenge of the blue-collar person against the, the establishment. Absolutely, because every 
person on this planet knows that cops, no matter where you are, they don't make a lot of money. No, no. So they're yeah, always no. any cop who comes after you is solid is going to be solidly middle class. Yeah. And if he gets you and you're higher than middle class, he's just taken down a predatory, eh? Sure, sure, sure. And I mean, a lot of them have come, I mean, a lot of the ones I meet in Scotland have come from solid working class roots, blue collar roots. They're kind of maybe the first people in their family to go to college or to go to school and everything else. And they've come out and they want to be cops or they want to be prosecutors. And, uh, you know, it's it, if you go back to uh, the English crime novel, the, kind of the, 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 the classic English crime novel, um, the, co- the, the actual... Uh, professional cops were, were, you know, were were not bright. They were not seen as being bright. So Sherlock Holmes, Lestrade, mm-hmm. Holmes is is posh, uh, has money and all the rest of it. Comes from a much higher social class than Lestrade, and Lestrade is looked down. And Lestrade needs Holmes. And then people will come to Miss Marple, or they'll come to Hercule Poirot, and the actual cops are usually seen as being kind of forelock tugging flunkies, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, and and we've changed now. We go, no, wait a minute, that ain't the way it is. You know, people like Miss Marple uh, or, or even Poirot would not be invited into a police investigation. <laughs> yeah, I don't want a small Belgian guy coming in and trampling all over my crime scene. <laughs> well, that too gets to uh, that there's, you know, uh, I think our society seems to be raising more humans who are less friendly to other humans. Uh, and I think we're going in the wrong direction in, in a sense. So that we'll always need Rebus. We always need, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think we'll always be fascinated by detective fiction because um, you've kind of suggested it already, but crime, you know, crime changes. When technology comes along, crime changes. And I've noticed a, kind of, a theme emerging in recent crime fiction is a lot of novels using the internet, using Twitter, um, you know, people being stalked online, people being watched from CCTV. Um, there's like a new bogeyman out there. And a new bogeyman is this new technology that's watching us, watching our every move. Uh, privacy is getting really hard to achieve. Um, and and the predators who are out there are doing it remotely. Mm-hmm. They don't need to follow us physically. They can just sit in their attic or their basement surrounded by technology and they can just steal our lives or interfere in our lives or track our every movement. And there's a lot of books dealing with that fear. And again, this is something that crime fiction does generation from to generation is, t- is, is, is um, look at the new fears that we have. So, you, you know, your Cold War thrillers. I can kind of see that coming back again. I think the spy novel is having a resurgence. <laughs> Have you noticed this? There's a resurgence in the spy novel at the moment. We all thought oh, yeah. the spy novel had died with the, the, the Berlin Wall coming down. No, it's, the spy novel is suddenly telling us what's going on. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff happening. We don't quite understand what's happening, and the spy novel tells us what's going on. I like that idea that the spy novel and the mystery novel with the one in front of you there, <laughs> Rather Be the Devil, the latest uh, Ian Rankin novel in the Reba series. Uh, those books tell us a lot about ourselves, too, about the, our own capabilities. It's not just about other people. It's, yeah. you know, maybe we have to look out for the darkness in our own souls. And, and uh, Rebus does. But unlike the kind of Sherlock Holmes figure or the Poirot figure, our, our detectives and our spies in fiction now tend to be every man. You mm-hmm. know, they're, they're much more like us. They're much more down to earth. They're more ordinary. They're ordinary Joes or whatever, or Joannas. Um, they're not seen as being superhuman. They're not super brainy, you know. Um, I mean, the Sherlock that we see on TV, the kind of manifestation now set in the present day with Benedict Cumberbatch. You go, yeah, he's he's super brainy, but he but he's you know, in real in the real world, he couldn't solve any crimes. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't stand a chance of solving crimes in the real world. Um, uh, and and our detectives are more realistic, I think. I, you know, I, the, like the only thing is that the one thing I've did with Rebus, and I don't know, I mean, I, I, there are reasons for doing it, but I made him a loner. You know, I thought I don't want him to be happily married with kids so that he's in a skinny serial killer investigation. And he goes, I'm sorry, Gov, I've got to go home to take my kid to the dentist <laughs> or it's Valentine's. I've got to take my wife out for a meal. Or, no, we've got a vacation. I can't, I'm, yeah, I'd love to solve this case, but I've got my vacation coming up. So, and this, you know, you get this in a lot of crime fiction where a detective tends to be divorced or unmarried. They tend to have not many social ties because the reader wants them to focus on the story. And as a, as a writer, I want to focus on the story as well. I don't want that stuff to get in the way. 
Um, but, you know, you go, well, actually, Rebus has got a daughter, so what's she up to? Oh, okay, she's out of kids, so now he's a granddad, so that changes that dynamic. And, oh, in the previous book, there's a stray dog, and he takes it in. So in this book, he's got a dog. He never had a dog before, so suddenly he's got Brillo. something he has to care about. Brillo the dog. I was a, I was 50 pages into this new book, and I went, oh, well, I forgot I'd given him a dog <laughs> to go back and put the dog in. <laughs> yeah, they're a retro friend in the middle. I, I like the... Uh, um, Malcolm Fox's uh, story too. You've been doing a lot of work with him in these Rebus books. Right? Yeah, again, he's you know he gave me an opportunity to to you know present the cop as someone with a family. Mm -hmm. So in previous books, he was going to see his dad. His dad's in an old folks home, and he was going to see him in a care home. And his sister, who's got quite a chaotic personal life, and. You know, he, he thinks he's been trying to do the right thing by her, but has he been, has he really, or is he just trying to be a controlling influence on her life? And uh, and she's wise to him. I think she's much sharper than he gives her credit for. And we see their relationship developing um, through the books. And she takes some wrong turns in her life, but she knows what she's doing sometimes uh, more than he does. And she, you know, she tells the reader, look, this guy isn't just, he's not necessarily the good guy. He's quite a controlling guy. Um, and he's a kind of virtue signaling kind of guy as well. You know, he, he, he wants to do the right thing so people will notice him doing the right thing. <laughs> Not because it's the right thing to do, but so he gets a pat on the head. Uh, so he's, he's a cat. You know, I kind of like Malcolm, but as readers go, oh, he's a, you know, he's, he can be a bit bumptious or he can get into, you know, he's, he, you know, he's in previous books, he's tried to get Rebus kicked off the force. And of course, people don't, readers don't like that. Um, but, I think his his relationship with with Rebus and with Siobhan Clark has changed. The interesting scene in his, one of the, my favourite scenes in this book to write was when, you know, Rebus has this illness, and he can't tell people like Siobhan Clark about it because they care about him too much. Mm -hmm. But he can tell Malcolm Fox. I thought that was a really nice scene. And there's another scene uh, later on that kind of follows on where you see, you know, the two men who kind of sort of don't like each other but are are still really respect one another. Yeah. And there's, I think you've done a great job I mean, of empathy. moving that along. I think there's empathy there. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with, with Cafferty and Rebus. You know, these two guys understand each other very well. And yet, you know, I'm never sure in my mind if they're going to become best friends or kill each other. Both are possible from book to book. <laughs> well, and we're trusting that uh, somewhere around uh, May or so you're going to be... Uh, in a screaming deadline for no, your July no. book? This is my year off. It's your year off? Yeah, I'm not right. I'm having a, a sabbatical year this year because of it's re been Rebus's 30th. Oh, okay. Big US tour, big UK tour, foreign tours. I'm doing Germany. I'm doing Australia, New Zealand. I'm going to Bali and Hong Kong later in the year. I'm doing a lot of that. We've got the Rebus Festival in Edinburgh that needs to be organised. So there's a lot of stuff to do. And I said to my publisher, I don't think I can write a book. And they said, we don't think you can write a book either if you're doing all this stuff. So it's a sabbatical year. Uh, recharge the batteries, have a long, long think about what I want to do next, and we'll see what happens. So this time next year, hopefully I'll be writing a new book. I The last time we spoke and you said those words about taking a sabbatical, you were back pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Rebus was rocking and rolling, and I, uh, I hope that to be the case for a long time to come. Yeah, I hope so too, Rick. I've been speaking with Ian Rankin. His newest book is Rather Be the Devil. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.